0: It's pleasure to be here at Mercy Hill today. You know, I've known Phil, probably I met you about 18 years ago at a church planning conference in Florida. And I just want you guys to know that you have a good guy here, so he's a keeper. So be sure you keep him. Uh, as Andy said, we do have literature at the table there. We put out a magazine that comes out uh, about twice a year with very helpful articles. Uh, you can pick one up for free. There's one here that says, Stories of Faith and Perseverance in Singleness and Marriage. This one is about giving parents a voice on sexuality and this one is about transgenderism and how to understand it from a biblical basis so be sure to pick one of those up and you can actually sign up and get that um, twice a year if you like Uh, the passage that we're going to look at this morning that i'm honored to to speak on uh, impacts a lot of god's people the struggles it talks about Uh, there you will find a stern warning but we'll also find that it's a passage filled with mercy and grace uh, because of the Holy Spirit. Now, there, there haven't been many sermons on this passage that I've ever heard before. It's not just the kind of passage you would choose. Maybe you've read it before and you kind of gloss over it. Maybe it's going to be new to you. But it does contain difficult words. It contains kind of stunning words. But it's a passage that I think there's never been a more important day in time uh, to know how to take to heart in our own hearts and with other people around us because to try to live like Paul describes here is so contrary to our nature, uh, our personal history, our experience, and our record. And he's speaking to an area that we all often may remain vulnerable to for many years when I walk with Christ. So let me read that passage now. It's First Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. You know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you be holy, that you avoid sexual morality, and that each of you learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable not in passionate lust like those who don't know God. And in this matter, no one should defraud others or take advantage because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject God, man, but the God who gives him his Holy Spirit. Now, very quickly this morning, that's a rich passage. But I want to talk about this in three ways, three realities. One is how what Paul's talking about here is really kind of crazy. It was crazy to the culture he was speaking to. Uh, Secondly, I want to talk about how the, the struggles he talks about here among us are often concealed in the church. And thirdly, I want to talk about how Christ gives clean clothes for corrupt people. All right? So first of all, crazy to the culture. You know, Thessalonians is thought to be one of Paul's very first epistles. It was written about 20 years after the death of Christ. It's the letter from an exiled missionary to a group of people, men and women. He calls them brethren, but the, real, the word there is really refers to all kinds of siblings in a family. All God's people who are at the church at Thessaloniki, uh, which is now Greece, part of Greece. And if you were to read the first three chapters of this uh, book, you would find that Paul spends that time talking about the good report he's heard from Timothy about how they're doing as a new church. So it's a very emotional response to the good things that are happening. And then in here, chapter 4, he takes a kind of little curve where he details an exhortation and an admonishment to continued godly living. Because he knows it's not just what happens in the beginning, but it's the long haul. It's the continued walk with Christ. Uh, is where we're often apt to and tempted to lose hope about things in our lives and struggles that we have. So really, Paul is talking about the difficulties which any young, exuberant, vibrant, and energetic church like Mercy Hill, uh, yet imperfect body of people... Uh, especially those who have brought the baggage of their fallenness into their walk with Christ, which we all do, uh, but who are now called to seek out and live their faith in a new way and to walk with Jesus so that it doesn't continue to impact you the way it has before. Now, it's this admonition of living to please God uh, that Paul is talking about. And for God to call this church, a Thessaloniki church, or any church today to live a holy and sexually moral life, uh, to actually learn how to control your own body, which you can't do, of course, without control, learning how to control your head and your heart. Uh, that was so radical at that time. You know, around the year uh, 45 AD or 55 AD, that was so radical for that culture. Uh, and honestly, to try to live like this today is pretty radical for this culture, isn't it? it it's kind of craziness to the culture think about living your life like Paul calls you to here. To, to look like this, to purpose to live your life like Paul says is crazy. In fact, I was talking to a group of men at a church about a year ago, year and a half ago, and I was reading this passage and uh, something happened that had never happened before. And I've been speaking for 38 years and something happened. I always think nothing's going to happen that I haven't ha- had happened before. But as soon as I read this passage, this young man about 40 jumps up in the room and says, that's crazy, God doesn't expect anybody to live like that anymore. <laughs> and so I kind of like gathered my composure and I thought, well, maybe he's just speaking for three-fourths of the men sitting here. <laughs> and uh, I, say, I was able to say to him, sir, well, he, he, it, it does matter and he does uh, want us to live like that, but the important thing is he never gives us a command or something to follow that he doesn't give us somehow the power to to do it. And we're going to get into that in this passage. And really, as the early Christian church, like this the uh, church would have stuck out trying to do that in their lives, they would stick out to the surrounding culture like a sore thumb. Uh, so it became about inverted living for these new Christians. Now what is that? Uh, Tim Keller says inverted living is this. It's, it's where people who were once stingy with their money and their possessions, but very liberal with their bodies, and their hearts, sexually speaking, became just the opposite. They became people that were very liberal with their money. As in Acts 2.45 it says, having all things in common, they began selling their possessions and goods to give the profits to anybody who had a need. That's pretty radical, isn't it? So they became very liberal with their possessions, but get this, they became very stingy with their bodies. So it just got inverted. Because, of course, they realize none of it belongs to me anymore. Neither my possessions, nor my body, or my heart. Now, Paul doesn't mince words here in this passage. He kind of admonishes by by contrasting. He contrasts the saved with the unsaved, the regenerate, those who have the spark of life in them, with those who don't. And he says this, I ask and urge that you do this more and more. Again, what? Learn how to control your bodies in a holy and honorable way, not in passionate lust, or another version says lustful passion, like those who don't know, or the Gentiles who don't know God, but in a holy and honorable way. Now, I don't have to tell you that for the average person on the street out there, that's not way up there and a high priority to do, is it? Uh, or with your co-workers or people at school. Uh, in this church, in this culture, that's just not on the radar. To actually work at submitting your heart and your body purposely live like this, actually... Paul is inferring that it's unnatural to do that uh, unless you know Christ, unless you know Jesus. Because what is natural, as he says here, is is just passionate lust. And of course, I've learned in my many years of ministry that lust takes no captives, only casualties. Uh, Now, once in a while at harvest, I'll, I'll come up with a definition of something so that everybody can understand what I'm talking about, so it's kind of a common denominator. And here's the definition I came up with the word lust years ago. Lust is that heart hunger in me that takes those made in the image of God, whether it's another man or another woman, from a magazine page, a DVD, online, in cyberspace, out there or up here, and it reduces them to what I can get out of them to feed my hungry heart. Let me say that again. Lust is that heart hunger in me that takes those made in the image of God whether it's a man or a woman, on a magazine page in a DVD, inline in cyberspace, out there or up here, and reduces them to what I can get out of them to fill my hungry heart right now. Now, when I've shared that with men and women coming into our ministry, they kind of shake their head. Yeah, yes, you just put your finger on it. Well, we know the nature of this is that it lust disregards, it devours, it uses. Uh, And Paul says here, while it's the nature of the fallen sinful heart and characterizes those who don't know God, it should not continue characterizing our life, and I want to add, without major World War III going on in our life. (laughs) Does that make sense? Uh, That as we come to know Christ and we walk in Him, as we continue to struggle with these things, it should cause us to start having a fight, a fight of the good faith in this. And although it's contrary to who we are As believers now but common to who we are by nature paul says it's that from which we need to keep being saved from now one of my favorite uh theologians old theologians was a guy named william law and he was a pastor back in the 1700s and you probably never heard of him but you've probably heard of his three best disciples his three best disciples were george george whitfield charles wesley and john wesley (laughs) So you can almost say, if there hadn't been for a William Law, there wouldn't have been any of those guys. But William Law said this in a sermon one time, in 1760 actually. He said, we need to know one thing. The gospel, our salvation, consists wholly in being saved from ourselves. From that which we are by nature, and from that to which our hearts naturally go. That's the role of the gospel. That's the role of the gospel in a continuing way in our life from now to the time we reach heaven. But it shouldn't surprise us, and it probably doesn't surprise you. You know, we live in a culture uh, that promotes and seeks what? Microwave, impersonal, on-demand, instant false intimacy now. And it's a culture that just comes up with more creative ways about how to do that. Uh, I read recently where there are now over 30 million pornography websites out there. Uh, and the thing I was reading that said that if you hit print, don't think about that, but if you hit print, it would take 350 buildings the size of the Library of Congress. Uh, it could, shouldn't surprise us that sexting is a rage among 14 to 17-year-olds. We know that companies have have poured millions of dollars into technology so that you could be at a Phillies game, but you can be watching something you shouldn't be watching inside your coat pocket while you're there. Uh, It shouldn't surprise us. I saw a piece of literature recently aimed at 10-year-olds that said, think you're gay, you won't know till you try. This is a culture that wants to consume us and help us cooperate with our base nature in these ways. Yet the truth, uh, the truth of Hebrews still stands. Hebrews 12 says, Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now that's, a he- that's heavy. Now I can't think again of a more difficult day to do that. Um, sexually speaking, uh, we live in a world and a culture uh, with our own fallen and broken hearts uh, where sex outside God's boundaries is just made to seem so natural and so attractive. Uh, and, and again, gender. Uh, the pastor uh, mentioned gender in his prayer. Uh, gender now has become the be-all and end-all of identity. Uh, you've heard of the acronym LGBTQ+, plus: gay, straight, lesbian, bisexual, questioning, plus. The plus is now 114 other gender designates that you choose from. Uh, you know, one of the things God said to Cain when uh, he, he was saddened about his... his um, sacrifice not being accepted, God said this, be careful, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is to have you. Well, that could sum up what not only our culture, but our fallen hearts operate Usually, Sin is crouching at the door, and we have to be aware and on guard about it, because what we've done is we've come to put sex and sexuality in a place that it was never meant to be. One of my favorite, another one of my favorite authors is a guy named Paul Tripp, and he says this about that. He says, sex is one in a whole catalog of created things that are good things, that can become bad things when they become ruling things. So a, a good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. If you allow your heart to be ruled by your lusts, you will not only misuse the good gift of God, but you will end up being controlled by it. He says, our lives will, only, will always be shaped by whatever is our street level master. I will only stay within God's wise boundaries when he's the functional ruler of my life. You know the difference in those? The functional ruler is, is, is where I turn when the rubber meets the road. And where I incorporate what I know about scripture up here to down here. So Paul really is making a uh, pretty big deal out of this in this passage, and maybe that's why we tend to avoid it. But the truth is, I was telling one of my staff about uh, preaching on this topic, and, and he made the point. He said, really what this passage is, is making the explicit point that who we are sexually often determines, determines who we are spiritually. Uh, the Lord does care about what we do with our hearts and our bodies and our minds in this area because it reveals the allegiance of our hearts. It reveals what's going on there both to Christ, to our families, and the community of believers that are around us. So when that's betrayed, really everybody does suffer. So in other words, you might say the crux of this passage is that our sanctification, our growth in Christ, uh, can often be linked back to how we live our sexual lives. And if you haven't noticed, again, that's getting more and more difficult. Uh, this text gives the impression, because it contrasts those who are indwelt by the Spirit and those who aren't, again, that's actually unnatural for a person to want to live this way without a deep encounter of Jesus. And I would, I would add to that an ongoing encounter of Jesus uh, working deep in our hearts. Because really, you know, it's only when the Holy Spirit mixes it up with us, I think, that, uh, and shows us how much Christ loves us, uh, that we really have the desire or the will or the power to follow God in, the, in these hard areas. And even then, it can be a heck of a challenge. But I want you to know that God knows our hearts. He knows uh, the things we use to run to, to get relief, and he wants to redeem us from those things. But nothing shocks or surprises our God. And, and really, nothing should shock or surprise us as people in God's church. Uh, I'm spending some time talking about this today, folks, because I think the kind of enslavement Paul talks about in this passage runs directly opposite of our ability to love others well. Our ability to reach out and pour our lives into other people. I once had a friend uh, named Dan Allender who said, The antidote to lust is really to start loving other people well in your life. But of course, if Satan uh, wants to keep a person paralyzed and immobile, uh, he is going to prevent him from doing that. So we need the help of the gospel, and we need the help of one another uh, in all this. Uh, now, while God, while God calls us to this kind of life, the working out of that is often a diff- different matter and a difficult matter. Uh, because the struggles, and this is my second point, the struggles that we're talking about, that Paul talks about in this chapter, aren't ones that we usually are aware of in each other's lives, are they? So they're concealed in the church. Struggles that we have with uh, morality and lust are concealed in the church. Now, I think that sex and sexuality for many of God's people are often a complicated and confusion, con- confusing mixture uh, of fear, pain, guilt, shame, and hopefully some joy in the right context because of our past or because of how we have misused them. And, and they're so powerful. They're so powerful. Again, that's, that's how we now define ourselves, right? LGBTQ plus, all those things. By the way, I just read a statistic where um, from the, um, one of these think tanks called the J. Walter Thompson Innovation Group. And this statistic was five years old, but it said that 52% of teens between 16 and well, 16 and 24, now identify as the something in the plus category. 52% of the 5,000 that they surveyed. Now, there's a guy who wrote a book of prayers and poems several years ago about hard things in the Christian life. And his name was Harold Maya. And he had one poem. And he called this poem Jet Sex Engine. And here's what he says. If you've never asked God why sex and sexuality are so powerful, or why we seem to struggle with it so much, or if you've never made promises about sex or sexuality you couldn't keep, or if you've never worked at putting the brakes on lusts and you know you can't pull it off yourself, and you've tried to rationalize your desires, you may, if, if you haven't done any of this, you may be living as an alien in today's world. That's true. And compounding that, of course, is our nature to want to keep secrets. Our nature not to want to let anybody else in on the inside of what's going on with us in these ways. Uh, For fear, so in fear and shame, we often tend to go it alone. Uh, We often live within our secret cells where no one else can see because we don't want anybody to know the real us and what could fall apart if they did. That's what Satan wants to tell us, by the way. That's how he wants to keep us in prisons. You know, I grew up in the 50s and 60s. You have two old guys here today talking to you. I grew up in the 50s and 60s, pre-internet, and I had my share of a lot of sexual mess in my life, uh, scarring that took years to know how to apply God's grace to. and even then, it became a community event. In other words, it became an event where I let other people in my life begin speaking into my life in this way. I, I, I risked stepping out and letting someone know the real nature of my heart. And God brought men to disciple me, and he also brought their wives also to, to disciple me in some sense. So I want you to know, too, that any lasting change in our lives usually always takes place through community. Not trying to walk a road alone through a couple of brothers or a couple of sisters sharing your burdens with you in this way. And again, Satan wants to to shout loud and clear in our ears, if you have scars in this area or you have struggles, don't talk to anybody. They'll never understand. But again, Scripture takes for granted that these are things that God's people struggle with in our hearts. Uh, Tim Keller, in one of his early books, said this. He said, every effective church will have lots of sexual strugglers in it. We'll go on to say that effective or not, most churches already have people with long-standing patterns of life-dominating struggles and sin. When people sit in our pews, we're all in various stages of dealing or not dealing with our struggles and problems. Some of us are in denial. Some of us know that our sin may be against God and we live secretly rebellious lives. Some of us are struggling with various degrees of success and failure to follow Jesus in these ways. Others are regularly and effectively accessing grace present in the gospel to try to lead obedient and changed lives. Now listen to this. He says, the challenge of the church is to assist people at all these stages. Do you know that Phil? Phil knows that. And that's no small task. We minister to the self-deceased. We lovingly confront the rebel. We offer forgiveness to the guilt-crushed. We provide hope for the despairing and support for the surrendered. And if that wasn't enough, he says this, today the church must invite in and hold the attention of those who formerly would have never looked to the church for help or hope. The church is a place people can look to for help and hope in these areas, because of the gospel. Verse seven, Paul says, God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. I think sometimes for an increasing number of us, uh, that's becoming more of a pie in the sky wish than a reality. Uh, And by not encouraging people to be honest about their struggles, we're really not helping people struggle well in the Christian life. Uh, or learn how to walk in obedience, as Titus says. Titus says this, "'For once we were foolish and disobedient "'and led a slave, and slaved to various passions and pleasures. "'But when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared in our Savior, "'He saved us not because of anything we would do, "'but according to His own mercy, "'by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. "'For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation.'" training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion and live self-right, controlled, upright lives right now. So this is something we have to learn and grow in and help each other learn and grow in and open the door for those among us who struggle in these ways Uh, to help us see Christ more clearly. Uh, Because when you struggle in your secret sins, in, in your own heart with things like that, the gospel is always foggy, and we really need other people to walk with us to bring us out of that fog. And it's really about seeing Christ more clearly, and helping, helping each other to understand that that Christ and God offers so much more real life than we get from our idols. One of my uh, some 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 of you here may know a book called The Valley of Vision. It's one of my texts that's standard on my desk. It's a a book of prayers that were written by the Puritans about 400 years ago, but here's one of them I love. It says, When Jesus came into my soul, he became more dear to me than my sins had formerly been. His kindly rule replaced sin's tyranny in my life. Teach me to believe that if I would ever have any desire or temptation subdued, I must not only labor to overcome it, but I must invite Christ continually to dwell in its place. Jesus must become more to me than my lust and desires have been so that his sweetness and power may dwell there. So part of our work in the body of Christ with each other is helping people grasp that more. Helping our own heart grasp it and helping other people grasp it as well. But in order to do that, you know, we have to be kind of unshockable realists today about what's going on. We have to help each other see our sins and temptations and help each other run to the throne of grace. uh, Someone talked about that this morning, earlier. Running to the throne of grace, running to the cross, running to Christ. uh, In the terms of Hebrews 4, it says to approach the throne of grace daily in your time of need. I love that phrase, in your time of need. It doesn't say approach the throne of grace when you have it figured out, or approach the throne of grace when you've repented 20 times, or approach the throne of grace when you've done... Uh, ten Hail Marys kind of thing. Uh, where you've done it yourself, it says, run to the throne of grace when you are undone. When's the last time you've done that? To so run to the throne of grace when you're undone with yourself. To bring all your fears and all your anxieties and all the ugliness of your own heart. That's the kind of God that we have that's put his son at his footsteps, footstool to, to listen to us at the, at the throne waiting for us to do that. I was talking to this idea one time several years ago to a guy who was in our ministry who continually took three steps forward, one step back, three steps forward with his struggle with sin and lust. And and, uh, he said, now that's a novel idea, running to the throne when I need it the most in my most x-rated moments. He said, all I know to do, I know about slinking to the throne, slinking back to the throne. You know, a lot of us live in that slink back mentality And we need fresh grace and fresh hope to say God says no. As in Luke 15 when the father is running to the son and he opens his arms, that's the God we have at the throne in Christ. Come and let me hug you and kiss your neck again even though this has happened. That's the kind of God we have. So we need to be helping one another do that. To learn to see his pain and our pain. To see the clean for the imperfect on a daily basis and not to have the sleep back mentality. That is the role of the church, to help us steward God's good gift of sex and sexuality inside his perimeters. Because he says that's where we'll best flourish and that's where there's the least potential for hurt and heartache. But we need one another to do that. Why is it that we have so much trouble with that anyway to start with? Well, Paul Tripp again says something about that. He says, uh, Sex and sexuality can also always be a way that we express our identity. It will tell us whether we're at the center of our universe or whether I'm a created being and dependent on God. He says the way I handle or misuse it will often reveal what's ruling my heart. Therefore, examining myself in the light of God's standards it confronts me with my inability and shows me I always need grace. So running to the cross shows us of our inability and our weakness and that we always need grace. In fact, uh, in this uh, article he wrote, he said this. He said, God's call to holiness is as impossible for me to achieve in myself as it would be to save myself. That's powerful. In myself, to save myself. So Paul's talking about something in this passage that, number one, was crazy to the culture, and it's still crazy to our culture. He's talking about something that uh, is often concealed in the church because of our fears and our anxieties about what someone will think. And today I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with a secret sin or secret temptation that you don't have power over, think about one person in your life today in the church that you trust and make a commitment to yourself to promise that you're going to talk to them about this. You'll not be sorry. Thirdly... This would all be impossible except for the fact that God gives clean clothes to us, people who are corrupt by nature. You know, the gospel really is for sinners, for the dishonest, the shady, the damaged, the distorted, the would-be frauds. That's the essence of what that word means. And and some of us know that we feel that way from time to time. Uh, This passage says that that's who we are by nature, but it would be a shame if we were left there, if God hadn't acted. Uh, my uh, major in undergrad work at the University of Tennessee was classics. And, of course, we studied many philosophers. But I remember Aristotle. Aristotle believed that there was a force behind all things. He didn't know what it was, but he called it the unmoved mover. All right, the unmoved mover. Impersonal, far away, uninvolved. Folks, that's not our God. In fact, you could call him the moved mover. (laughs) He's the moved mover. He is moved by the plight and struggles of his people, the messes and the pits that we get ourselves in. He's done something in Jesus Christ, and he wants to continue to do more through his Holy Spirit. And it's the key to this whole passage, really. Uh, And it's what makes sense of it. You see, he says that God comes and takes up residence in us. His kingdom comes and resides in us. The third party of the Trinity that lived forever in heaven is now here in each of you, if you know Jesus. And, you're, and you want to say, that's great. Really? That's great. <laughs> I, I love the idea that that's great too, but sometimes I don't like that idea. <laughs> the third part of the Trinity is in me. I take him to places and I think of things I don't want the third part of the Trinity to be part of. But that's our God. He knows that. Uh, Our hearts are sometimes so full of garbage and junk, but his his spirit is there. Paul mentions him three times in this passage. He's not for everyone. He's only for those who have become followers of Jesus. But he's there for good, permanently, to show us, to convict us of ways that we're not unlike Christ, where our character is unlike him, not so that we can be filled with shame and, and Lack of hope, but so that we can see how much we need Christ and so that we might be filled with the hope of the gospel. You and all you have to do to, to be filled with the hope of the gospel in you is to admit your need for it. Your need for the gospel every day, every hour. Your need to let Jesus do radical surgery every day in our lives because He's given Himself to us and in Christ. He's taken the hit for us in his death, temptation, suffering, and resurrection. So that now, you know, Jesus has two roles. Number one, the scripture says he's our defender before the Father. He's our defender. He's our advocate. He's our defense attorney. Uh, one real good acronym to remind yourself of this at all times is the word MIA. You know, MIA, I learned it through the Vietnam War, it means missing in action. Well, we're missing in action, but Jesus is our mediator, intercessor, and advocate. All right? Uh, And he's come to reside in there until we reach heaven. He gives us himself. He gives himself to us a lot of imperfect people, flawed people, people with fickle hearts, pulled here and there by all kinds of stuff. Because, you see, he mingles his grace always with our stuff. He mingles his grace with our corruptions, uh, as a rule, not as an exception, as a rule. You know, in reading Hebrews 11, I was reading that again recently, and that's the book where it has the heroes of the faith. I think there are 33 mentioned there. Um, Some of them stuck out at me this time when I read them over again. One was David, of course. You know, David uh, was a great man. He was a spiritual leader. He gave us a a lot of the Old Testament, uh, the Psalms. Uh, We read more about David, actually, than any other person in antiquity. There's more written on print about David than any other person that lived in antiquity. Uh, But we also know that he was weak-minded at times, that he let his emotions go before him, uh, that he was full of pride and arrogance, sometimes hot-headedness characterized him. Now, if you read Chronicles and Kings, that will help fill in the gaps. That's the reason it's good to read some of those old books, Chronicles and Kings, because even there you'll find some things with this great man of God, like that he had seven wives and many concubines. It doesn't say, but let's say that's probably many. People that uh, he wasn't married to, but he slept with. Now, how, how could that be? And then I read in here Samson in that list. You've got to be kidding. I mean, Samson? Samson? Um, I used to use the example, he was the Justin Bieber of his day, but I guess Justin Bieber has become a believer, I think, now, so I can't use that anymore. But th- think of whoever is that kind of person today. That's who he was in his time. Uh, you know, when he was an early, when a young guy, um, you know, he had, the Jewish law was that you cannot marry outside your faith, not because there's anything wrong with people outside your faith, but because they were all idol worshipers, and God said they'll take your heart away to serve those other gods. So one day, uh, when he was like 17, he saw this girl by the stream who was a Philistine girl, and he told his parents, go get her for me. And they put up a little fight, and they said, wait a minute, can't you find a girl among the Hebrews? He said, no, I want them. I want her. So they went and got her. Shows they were helicopter parents 3,000 years ago. Uh, so he went and got her. Secondly, we're told that uh, he visited houses of ill repute, and I'll let you fill in the blank there. Thirdly, we know his... His love, I mean his lust for Delilah endangered the whole kingdom, it was almost the kingdom's downfall, and it ended up being his downfall. So here are these two guys mentioned that you just want to say, What? But but you know, the more I think about it, it's kind of the picture of the normal person following God and Christ, wrestling with real things, seeking to be holy, but with still lots of corruption in his life that needs to be still redeemed. Um, another Puritan that I love to quote from times is a guy named Thomas Watson. He wrote this book called The Godly Man's Picture. That's a wonderful book for men to study, by the way. Uh, He has a chapter in this book called Comfort to the Godly. But I, I thought it should be called Comfort to the Scoundrels. But he called it Comfort to the Godly. This is what he says. Do you ever with weeping eye look to Christ? And are you willing to bring your lusts and your idols to Him at that moment? He says, in this life, our belief, our faith is always mixed with our corruptions. In the best of saints, there are always interweavings of sin and grace. There's a dark side with the light side, much earthliness with much heavenliness. Even in the regenerate, that's God's people, there's often sometimes more corruptions than grace. There's often so much bad passion that sometimes it can be hard to see any good passion. Now, get this. A Christian in this life is like a glass of beer that has more foam in it than beer. <laughs> my, my, my son's one of these beer connoisseurs, you know. Uh, when we'd go out, when he was in college, I'd have to say, can't you pick a beer that doesn't cost eight you know? dollars, <laughs> you know? Anyway, so. Uh, but he says, "But here's what he says. He says, a little grace mixed with much corruption will always bring joy. A little grace. When God puts his tenderness there, he will always cherish the work of the Spirit. So no matter what you're struggling with today, in your own self, in your own heart, please know that, that he will always put the tenderness of His Spirit at work in your heart and is committed to doing that. And then at the end he says, as, as a fire may be hidden among many smoldering embers grace may also be hidden among many disorders of the soul so what he's saying there is that god's grace for you in the holy spirit can't be quenched it is there for you no matter what you're struggling with or no matter how much you've given up so paul is saying in this passage to sum up uh, to continue to struggle like this uh, and give it just your heart and let it go uh, is going to bring hurt into your life and it's going to set up a competition with with God. Now, we have to see that Jesus, in His righteousness, covers us and covers our sin. Because let me just say this, only a real Jesus who sits at the right hand of God interceding for you can say, I love you, when you hate yourself. Only a real Jesus sitting at the right hand of God interceding in you can make sense of your history, pain, and struggle when it all surfaces again. Only a real Jesus sitting at the right hand of God can free you from your sense of condemnation and guilt. Only a real Jesus sitting at the right hand of God can affirm you and give you peace of heart from your self-content, contempt. And only a Jesus sitting at the right hand of God can make you believe in your heart of hearts that even though Christ condemns me, so, uh, my sin condemns me, Christ commends me. Even though my sin may condemn me, Christ commends me. He approves of me, because of Jesus. And it's all because it's in the broken that he does his most powerful work. You believe that, don't you? No, you don't, because I don't believe it most of the time. But it's, it is in the broken and flawed that he does. And I'll end with this example. There's a statue that's uh, sculpted by Michelangelo. It was, uh, it's in the city of Florence. Maybe you've seen it. I've seen it. It's the statue of David. Now, Michelangelo was often commissioned to go the, build these beautiful works of art. And remember, your next work would only be as good as the last... Thing you did well, so people could say, hey, I want that too. So if you were going to be commissioned to do a work of art, a statue, what would you do? First of all, you would go try to find the best tools, right? You would want all the tools that you need for the statue. I have three children who are all artists at heart. Some of them are art majors, some of them are fine arts majors, but they used to always have to go to this store downtown Philadelphia called Utrecht's, which is the best art supply company around. I used to say again, Abigail, why does every tool in here have to cost $200? But they went to get the best tools they could get uh, to start their, their artwork, and then, then what would you do? You would go look for the raw material. You would look for the piece of granite or the piece of marble because you would want the best thing, the best unblemished thing, right? That's not what happened with Michelangelo. One day, after he was commissioned to do this work of art, he was walking by a trash pile, a trash heap, and he saw a piece of rock that another artist had started working on that was full of cracks and chisels, and had discarded on this trash heap for 25 years. It had been sitting there. But he looked at that piece of broken, blemished, tarnished piece of rock, and in his master craftsman eyes, he saw his statue of David. You know, isn't that the way it is in your life and mine? God takes the worst parts of our hearts, our past records, our present struggles, things that would shame us the most, things that we would want to run and hide from if we thought anybody knew them. And he wants to turn them into works of beauty and turn us into that as well. That's what Paul's talking about in this passage. And by the way, he does that in his master laboratory right here, Mercy Hill, in the church body. Amen? Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, Please visit our website at www.mercyhillandj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.